Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. A little while ago, a publicist reached out to me to see if her client, Kat Harris, would be a fit for Love and Life. Kat was releasing a new book, Sexless in the City, a sometimes sassy, sometimes painful, always honest look at dating, desire, and sex. I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. And it was very interesting, especially because of the depth of Kat's inquiry and analysis regarding a topic sex, which is all too often treated so very casually in our hypersexualized culture. Sex is obviously an incredibly loaded topic, encompassing our personal values and religion, along with the collective overt and covert expectations of our broader society. No matter where you fall, In the continuum of if it feels good, do it, to sex should only be a part of marriage. Wherever you fall in that space, you are going to find Kat's work so interesting, so thought-provoking. And as you reflect on her process and the choices she's made along the way, I hope these reflections will prove clarifying as you ascertain your values surrounding this most hot and loaded topic. Here's a little bit more about Kat. Kat Harris is the host of the Refined Collective podcast and co-founder of the online publication, The Refined Woman. Her first book, Sexless in the City, hit bookstores in April of 2021. She's also been a full-time photographer for the last decade, with her work featured in Vanity Fair, GQ, Forbes, People, Who, What, Where, US Weekly, Glamour UK, and more. She coaches and equips women all over the world in dating, relationships, singleness, sexuality, faith, and how to build a renewed and healthy biblical sexual ethic rooted in freedom, truth, and grace, as opposed to the oh-so-common shame and fear narratives so many experienced growing up in evangelical culture. Kat loves God, personal development, a good Beyonce dance party, and is a ranch dressing connoisseur. She believes in the power of story, that done is better than perfect, quality triumphs quantity, and that the journey truly is the destination. Ultimately, her vision is for women to know their beauty, identity, worth, and value, and to experience untapped freedom and joy in their lives, regardless of their relationship status. My interview with Kat Harris, after this. Kat, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. I'm excited to chat with you and just get to know you better. And I just feel like we're going to have a lot of real talk today. (laughs) I think we are. Having read your book, there is much real talk to be had (laughs) in Sexless in the City. And as I read your book, initially you wanted to be a tennis star. And then you were a photographer, but kind of landed in this sex single woman space because of your personal life. Mm -hmm. So talk to the audience a bit about 
how you ended up here, because it is kind of funny when you look at your professional trajectory, (laughs) one wouldn't necessarily think you'd be writing a book about sex and lack thereof. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So I went from being a Bible major in college to working in the nonprofit world on the West Coast in Southern California for a few years, and then landed a job with one of the top photographers in the nation and got into the photography world that way and moved to New York City almost upwards of a decade ago now to pursue editorial photography. And in that meantime, I also started a blog like every 20-something girl did about <laughs> 10 years ago called The Refined Woman. Talked about dating, breakups, and The Refined Woman has morphed into so many things that I never thought it would. But I realized the more I kind of remove my mask of perfection or wear this cute outfit. And the more I started talking about real things, I feel as though my people just started coming to me. And really why I wrote Sexless in the City was before it was a book, it it was a real life journey I went through for about five, six years before it was anything public. And essentially I grew up in in the South. I grew up in Texas in the early 2000s, really during the height of what's known as the purity movement in Christian culture. And the purity movement was this big marketing campaign run by evangelicals and Christians to make sure that their high school students did not have sex until marriage. Mm -hmm. And I was really wrapped up in that world and learned that good boys and girls don't have sex until marriage. And I wanted to be a good girl. So I got a ring that I wore on my wedding ring finger and pledged to not have sex until I was married. And in that also adhered to some really strict dating rules and pretty harmful, although at the time I didn't realize they were harmful narratives about gender roles, sexuality, my body, dating, all the things. And I never questioned them until I moved to New York. And in New York, I kind of had this come to Jesus moment, if you will, (laughs) on the heels of a breakup where I realized I have no idea why I'm not having sex outside Mm. of, I think the Bible says so, but I don't really know if it says so. And I don't really know if I care if it says so anymore. And it seems like I am the only person in New York City that is not sleeping around. And I really needed to figure out what I believed and why. And I needed to figure out what do I believe about God? What do I believe about sex? How do I want to move forward in my dating life as a woman living out dating and sexuality in a modern culture and hookup culture and online dating culture. So I went on a journey that I thought would be just honestly a a few days (laughs) and it turned into about five years. And it was one of those, you ask one question and it started with, what does the Bible really say about sex? And that question kind of morphed into like a thousand other questions. And in all my research, I found how most of the content written to people of faith about dating and sexuality are written by men and white men at that. And on top of that, men that got married when they were very young. And here I was an M and I'm 35 now. And I just felt like, man, it's not that 
everything you're saying is BS. It's just that they really had no idea what the female experience was and or what it's actually like to be in your 30s, 40s, and beyond and single with this ideology of not having sex. And so I I kind of ended up writing the book that I needed when I was going through that process, the perspective of how I want to actually hear from a single person and would love to hear from a single woman who's navigating this in real time. Yeah. And your book is so genuine and authentic. So it doesn't surprise me whatsoever that as you start to write and be just so candid and vulnerable for the best reasons, just, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm living this. And what I've been taught about it, I want to make sure I'm owning it because it's really mine and it's not just the little ring I put on my finger when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that I'm remaining authentic to who I am and the woman you believe God wired you up to be. And I hear you when you talk about so much of the rhetoric out there is written by people who have not lived adult life single. That pastor who got married at 22 and he's writing about how we have to be pure yeah, when you got married at 22, I, it was real rough, wasn't it? I mean, you just, yeah. I, I'm like, <laughs> wow, dude, you didn't like, have to have sex for two years. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, yeah, getting back to the notion of you being so vulnerable and candid, I'm not surprised that people came in droves to say, yes, Kat, keep writing because they resonated with it and they weren't mm. sure where to go either I, mm. as they were trying to navigate these waters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what I discovered in my process, once I really started asking those questions out loud, I I thought I was going to be the big weirdo. And really, I realized everyone wants to ask these questions too, but I think often in faith circles, we don't ask them. It's like just follow the rules, which is so interesting to me because that seems really anti what spirituality is about. Spirituality is typically an inside out job. And so for me, it was finally having the courage to say, listen, I love God. That is not changing. But I realized that everything that I was living and breathing and modeling in my dating life was externally motivated. I felt like... The only reason why I wasn't having sex because I quote unquote shouldn't have sex because I wasn't married. And I realized I need to figure out really outside of what I believe I'm supposed to believe, Right. <laughs> what right. do I actually believe? And what are the questions that I'm afraid to ask? What am I afraid to find out or not find out about God? And realizing in that as well, if God is real, then God doesn't have a fragile ego (laughs) and I can ask questions. I'm allowed to ask questions. It's very human to doubt and see and ask and go on a journey. Yeah. And it reminds me of the verse about we are to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind. And that's Mm. the, the mind piece is where I always like to land when I'm struggling with something or wrestling with something. And I go, no, I'm supposed to, (laughs) I'm supposed to love him with my mind. He gave me intellect and reason, and I am to use them. So to do this work, it's the harder way, I think. It's maybe easier to just go, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do and just toe the line. But I love that you were not afraid to dive in headfirst into (laughs) that wrestling ring. I don't know my wrestling analogy, so I'll stop there. But (laughs) (laughs) you you weren't afraid. And and so it's such a great read because it's just so genuine. And I'm struck by when you started to really struggle with 
am I not having sex because I don't want to have sex or I'm not really supposed to have sex? Or am I just back to some decision I made as a young child? And you told your roommate, you know what? I think this whole waiting till marriage thing, I think I'm done with it. And your roommate, Mm -hmm. who wasn't a Christian, was like, what? No, cat, don't. You have Mm -hmm. to stick with it, which I found very surprising. But I guess you did as well. But speak a little bit to that experience of having your not Christian friend say, oh, no, you got to stick to your guns here. Yeah. Well, she actually didn't say, she didn't tell me to stick to it and stick to my guns. She encouraged me to figure out what I believed and why. And her perspective was, hey, I want you to have sex so you can get on with your life and see that it's not that big of a deal. But she said, I know to you, it has really mattered. And it's been a huge part of your life, your experience, your journey with God. And so she said, you need to do some work. Figure out what you believe. Pray to Jesus. And she yeah. always puts quotes around Jesus. I'm like, oh, well, he was that, like an actual person. <laughs> <It's not> like, <laughs> um, she's like, pray to your Jesus, read your Bible, figure out what you believe. And she and she said, if you can come back to me with your solid reason for why you want to have sex, I'll be your biggest cheerleader. But until you do some real soul searching, I'm not going to support you just because you're tired of your conviction. Figure out your why and I'll support that. Yeah. And I love that. And it's something that I think we all should be doing with pretty much everything, especially a big ticket item and one that is really rooted in our values. And values clarification is something I talk a lot about with my community because it's something that helps us find our person because the more that we have a clarity, what matters to us and why it matters. Mm. We bring that to our partnership and it's so much easier to connect because so often our conflict and our problems in relationships are, again, value-driven. We're having a conflict because we have different values about spending money, for example. Should we spend? Should we save? That sort of thing. And so the more that we do this value work when we're single in all different domains, it's so useful. And I always try to encourage my community that the work that we do as singles, and you talk about that near the end of your book, that work that we do, we bring into our future partnership. And it's not wasted time. Sometimes singles feel like, oh, I've been single longer than I wanted to. And gosh, am I spinning my wheels? I'm really ready for that next step. I'm ready for partnership. Mm -hmm. And yet the work that I did independent was not at all a waste of time whatsoever. Makes me a better wife. And I always try to stress that. And that gets back to that value piece. As most of you know, I met Dan via a dating service. And the reason I hired a matchmaker was because as a professor, I was interested in meeting a professional gentleman with similar values of commitment to his career and service to his community. But I wasn't meeting that type of man on my own. So, I hired a service to introduce me to some. I know many of you have experienced this frustration too, which is why I'm happy to let you know about Millionaire Match, an exclusive award-winning dating site for elite singles looking for serious relationships and marriage. Millionaire Match's detailed verification process ensures you'll connect with high-quality, compatible matches, saving you your precious time and energy. Millionaire Match has been in business for 26 years, matching successful professional men and women with singles who align with their values. You can download the app for free. Just search Millionaire Match in the App Store or click the link in the description of today's episode to download Millionaire Match app. 
You know, you have a chapter called Modest is Hottest, which I think there's a song right now that's kind of going viral Mm -hmm. and people are really taking issue with it, I think. I don't know. It's just started to cross my radar. But you were looking at the notion that as women, it's our responsibility to dress in a modest, demure fashion so as not to trip up these lustful men, right? Mm -hmm. And the onus gets put on women a lot. And you talk about how it can be kind of benign, but then it can get to the point of she was asking for it, right? Because she was dressing so sexy and then someone took things too far and it was her fault. So women are tired of being told that we're responsible for men's urges and desires. And if they act in a way that is savage almost that it's our fault. Yeah. So first the video that you're talking about is by Matthew West. He's a Christian singer songwriter and he launched a music video in June, which he actually just removed, thankfully, <laughs> a couple of days ago called Modest is Hottest. And he's talking about his daughters, they need to be wearing turtlenecks and praying to God that his daughters will be more Amish than Kardashian and God forbid they wear yoga pants or crop tops. Those things are evil. And it was a joke, but it hit the nerve with me. I made a, a public video response to it. You can see part of that on my Instagram. But if we zoom out so much of culture in the church and culture both and have this message that say boys will be boys. Yeah. And it says underneath a statement like modest is hottest, we're saying stuff like, well, men are more sexual. And because men are more sexual, it's much harder for them to keep their desire in check. And what's being said underneath that is when a man has an urge and a man has a desire, he can't help himself. He has to act on it. So in order for a woman not to be sexually abused, assaulted, in order for a man to uphold his sexual integrity, what has happened both culturally and in the church is this idea of modest is hottest or this idea of women, you better cover up. You better not show your shoulders. You better not wear a skirt above your knees. You better not wear a crop top or God forbid you wear those yoga pants outside the yoga studio. You better not do that because men can't help themselves and they'll make bad decisions. So what we've done is we've put the weight of an entire gender sexual integrity on the shoulders of women. And mm-hmm. I I mean I grew up working for churches. I was a camp counselor in the summers at churches or for church organizations and All of us girls had to wear knee-length, baggy basketball shorts and oversized T-shirts, and the guys would just prance around camp with super short basketball shorts with no (laughs) shirts on all day. And I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, I want to lick the sweat off that guy's six-pack abs. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I, that must not be a real thought because I'm not sexual. Men are more sexual. And if we were both sexual, then there would be wardrobe ethic for both of us. And so what's so damaging about the whole message, and Liz Plank said this recently, she's an author, and she said, why are we not teaching men how to not be abusers? Why are we not mm-hmm. teaching men not to be abusers and only focusing on women not getting abused? Mm -hmm. Or I can put that in a different way. Do we have such a low view of men? 
Do we have such a low view of men that we think them incapable of self-control, that we think them incapable of taking ownership for the space they're taking up in the world? Do we think them incapable of having integrity? To me, that's where my faith comes into play. The very beginning of the God story in Genesis, it says, God exhaled the breath of life into humanity and called humans, man and woman, very good. And so that doesn't mean that women are just freaking awesome, which <laughs> we are. Men are too. And so in that, I, I don't want to say that I don't know that the healthy response is, well, I'm just going to wear whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want it. I don't know that that's necessarily freedom. I do think there is space to have a healthy conversation around modesty, but not until we remove the pressure and the crushing weight of sexual integrity of men that has been thrown on the shoulders of women too often by men in power. It's been that way for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, think even, I mean, we look at the story of Samson and Delilah, right? And it was Delilah's fault. She was just too bewitching, right? Or David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was just too sexy up there in that roof taking her bath. It's amazing. As we speak about it, I've never really thought about it this way, but it must be part of the fall that we somehow because it's been that way for so long. We make it a woman's problem. If Matthew West had sung another song about, hey guys, be gentlemen, be true gentlemen, yeah. and be strong and, and see part of your manliness as being able to be disciplined in this area and truly respect women and yourself, would you have been like, okay, that works? As long as it was like kind of a, a song for both? I mean, I just wonder what it would happen if we actually spent time teaching young boys and young men how to be men of integrity. What does it mean to be a man that honors a woman? What does it mean to be a man that takes ownership for the way he shows up in the world? What does it mean to be a man that has character and who wants to respect women. What does that look like? We're not having those conversations. And I think so much of a conversation around, if we're just talking about modesty, there's an incredible book called A Return to Modesty by Wendy Shallot. And she's a Jewish feminist. And it came out in the 90s in the height of the hookup culture. And she says that modesty is really a, an internal sense of self. When we are able to pause and develop an internal sense of self and worthiness and value and dignity from the inside out, we typically don't feel the need to sleep with people who don't care about us or dress in ways to get external validation. And so I wonder what would happen instead of telling women what to wear or what not to wear, what if we focused on teaching all of our young people how to have a deep sense of internal self, a deep sense of internal worth. Because what I see in the modesty culture is similar to what I experienced in the purity culture and much of church culture, which wasn't is do these things, don't do these things to have your seat at the table. Don't have sex, don't touch his butt, don't have sleepovers, girls wear this, don't wear this. And we are stopping externally. There's no going to the deep places of why do I want to post that picture online? Why, why do I want to wear X? Is it because I really feel great in it? Then wear it and own it. 
Or is it because I'm looking for something outside myself? Is it because I'm bringing a question to the world externally that was never meant to be answered externally? That is so poignant and profound and so beautifully put. It goes back to all of our motivations. And if we're looking for that external validation, we're always going to be looking for it. We're always going to be searching. We'll always be upping the ante. It will never be enough. Yeah, that's right. It will never be enough. And I love this notion of being more intentional with our young men. And I hate to say it, but I think going back to your quote, do we have such a low view of men that we think them incapable of self-control? Do we think men are so beneath women that they are stunted and unable to take responsibility for their own sexual desire and integrity? I think, yeah. I think, yeah. I think as a culture, we have given up on the men. And so we look to the women and go, well, it's on you. You got to be the gatekeeper here. And it's sad. It's very disparaging toward men. It really bums me out because so much of my audience is is women. I have 95% female audience. And the few male podcast and press outlets I've been able to get on, unanimously every single man will say to me, it sounds like you really hate men or you're a man hater wow, you're such a feminist. I'm like, yeah, I'm a feminist. A feminist believes in the social, economic, and political equality of the sexes. Who doesn't want to be a feminist? But I'm like, actually, I wish you could hear my heart, men. That like, My heart is that I believe you capable. I believe you to be incredible, strong men who are amazing. And I I love men. I want to marry men. (laughs) I have a brother. I have a dad. Yeah. And my challenge to the culture and to the church is not because I hate men. It's because I actually feel like I believe that the God image is in men, just like it is in women. And instead of shirking responsibility, let's all take ownership for how we're showing up. That's such an excellent point. And you ultimately, in this chapter, you link it to what you spoke to a few moments ago. It's all about self-respect, self-love, knowing that you are worth what you're worth, that you have inherent worth because you are a child of God and you're made in his image for both sexes, that we don't need to look to that external validation. And so to be very mindful, like you said, if you want to put on an outfit and you're not looking to then take a selfie and get 7,000 likes, it's because you just want to just rock out that outfit. Well, fine. But if it's really that you are at some level trying to meet some need externally with some vapid comment from somebody you don't even know, and that somehow is going to make you feel okay about yourself. We really need to examine why we're turning over the power to how we feel about ourselves to all these people out there in this yeah. world who don't know us, don't care about us. Yeah. And to to that point, I think even for myself, there's some times where I don't know my motive or I don't know my expectation until I'm in the middle of it and feeling, oh, wow. I... I, and I think we've all done this. I totally yeah. am posting that picture because I just really want my ex to see how, <laughs> how hot I For look, sure. how much he's missing out on how amazing <laughs> I am. And if we're going to have a conversation about modesty, let's talk about heart, context, and presence. Let's talk about what's my why. So we're starting from the inside out. What's my heart in anything that comes out of my mouth, anything that goes external, what's my heart? What's the context? Is it appropriate or helpful or supportive for me to wear 
a business suit to an interview. Yeah. Would it be okay for me to wear that out on a Friday night? Yeah. But I'm probably going to wear a skirt and a cute top and maybe some heels. And that's great. I probably wouldn't wear that to the job interview. Is it cool for me to wear a bikini at the beach? Yeah. Would I wear that? on stage, if I was preaching a sermon, no. And that doesn't make me duplicitous. It means I'm taking into context the situations that I'm in. And then I think presence is a huge thing. I I remember growing up and I'm a little nervous that the 90s and early 2000s are coming back in fashion-wise because <laughs> gone are the yeah. days where I'm going to wear low-rise jeans again. <laughs> but I remember being in high school and wearing low-rise jeans and having my underwear always hanging out. And always wondering, oh, am I about to have a wardrobe malfunction? Is something going on? And Wendy Shallot in her book says something along the lines of, it's so freeing to not have the distraction in your head of, am I looking okay? Is my bra hanging out? Is my butt hanging out? Is is my dress going to fly up? I'm able to think about so many other things that matter when I'm able to be present and not be worried about my clothes. And and this is coming from a person who I wear yoga pants, I wear crop tops, I love bikinis, like yeah. or I get called out for immodesty constantly, but I'm curious about those three things. Let's have a conversation about that as opposed to making clothing a female problem. Yeah. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book. Single is the new black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single is the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. You also talk about the fact that although women are, of course, historically and currently, we think of them as more likely to be objectified. You talk about in your chapter, stay out till you make out, (laughs) that we can be honest with ourselves that sometimes women objectify men. If we're just looking for that external validation, you put on a cute outfit, you want to go out and you want to feel pretty and you want to feel affirmed for your femininity. And all those desires are normal and healthy and there's no problem with them. But if we're just looking for someone to hey, pay attention to me, make me feel good. That's really not being very honoring of this other human being who is in our our presence at this moment. Yeah, yeah. So when I was in my 20s, a group of my girlfriends and I would do what we called stay out till you make out. And we would go out on a Friday night and be like, we're not coming home until we make out with someone. So my goal is I'm going to go to that bar. I'm going to go to that club and go to that party. And I am going to find a guy. It doesn't matter who he is or what his name is. As long as I get my makeout in, like I'll have a successful night. Mm-hmm. And in that, I remember doing that once I was at a bar in Brooklyn with a group of friends and I was making out with this guy that I didn't even know his name. I didn't care that I didn't know his name. And I remember kissing him and feeling nothing. And not in the sense that there wasn't sexual attraction there, but I just remember having this moment, this 
existential moment while I'm making out <laughs> on this dance floor where I just thought I literally could be kissing my hand right now. Yeah. And it would be the same because that's all I'm looking for. I'm just looking for a pair of lips because I have a desire. I have an itch that I'm trying to get scratched and I need a back scratcher that comes in the form of a makeout. <laughs> right. And I think it was a interesting moment for me as I walked away from that because I thought, wow, like if I don't care what his name is, if really the only thing that I care about is if he's going to give me mine, mm -hmm. if he, is he going to scratch my itch, then I have turned him into an object, an object of my desire. And in that, I think often, whether it's a makeout or we're sleeping around or we're just fishing for that compliment, whatever it is, mm -hmm. I realized what I was doing is I was taking this three-dimensional human being that has a story and a life and hurts and dreams and flattening him into a one-dimensional object to just give me what I wanted. So it it started and ended with me. And I think that that is dehumanizing. So yeah, it's it's always easier to look out and be like, well, guys are objectifying women. But I also always want to pause and say, how am I showing up in the world? Typically, when we see it in someone else, we spot it, we got it. <laughs> so yeah. something, yeah. if a behavior is triggering me in someone else, it's probably because there's something in me that resents that I have the same capacity to do the mm. same thing. And so I, I stopped staying out until I make out um, <laughs> because I just thought it's actually not getting me what I want. I don't just want an itch scratched. I want a relationship. I want a marriage. I want a life with someone. And this actually isn't moving the needle forward. And, and in fact, it's treating men poorly and it's keeping me stuck and attracting guys that just want casual things because I was in those moments just looking for casual encounters. So mm -hmm. there is, there's a whole bunch of layers of why that just wasn't working for me. I just love that you take a very thoughtful approach to that and a very honest approach to it. And in the culture of if it feels good, do it. And two consenting adults, so no one's harmed, right? But the, the way that you approach it, there's more nuance there. It's, yeah, two consenting adults, but if we're both just flattening each other, that's, as you said, it's it's not really a humane interaction, even though yeah. both people may be like, oh, we're fine. It's no big deal. We're, we're good here. We're both, we're both using each other. We're both scratching the itch. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. This might sound graphic, but one of my mentors said this to me years ago. She said, it's like you guys are using each other's body to masturbate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's like, yes, you know, we want in informed and enthusiastic consent. But I wonder if part of the informed part of consent is me being honest with myself about what is it that I really want? Mm -hmm. What is it that I'm looking for? Where am I headed? And are my actions in alignment with what it is that I really want? Mm -hmm. So is the casual in the moment make out or hook up or whatever it is really in alignment with my values? Talk about value clarification. Is it really in alignment with who I want to be tomorrow morning? Mm -hmm. with who I want to be next month, next year? Is it in alignment with the type of relationship I want? And maybe sometimes the answer to that question is yes. Maybe it's like, well, I'm on vacation and I'm really <laughs> right. connecting with this guy and I want to make out with him. Okay. But 
I, I found for myself more often than not that the answer was no, that I was mm-hmm. out of alignment with myself and what it was that I really wanted. And I was, as I was objectifying, I was also settling for scraps of what I really wanted. I was settling mm-hmm. for crumbs when really I don't want just a guy to make out with at a bar on a Friday night. I want to go to brunch with someone on Sunday. I want to watch a movie on a Tuesday night. I want to hang out with friends with my person. And and so I was getting part of the need met, part of the itch scratched and settling for much less than what I really wanted. And in mm-hmm. doing that, treating guys poorly. And that resonates so much with so many of the women in my community who are like you. They're, they didn't get married at 22. So they've had to wrestle with this stuff so much longer. And They get weary and they get hopeless and they get demoralized. And when we're in those moments, that's when it's very easy to settle for those crumbs because Mm -hmm. you're like, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, this vision I have for this partnership with my person and all the things you spoke to, just the day-to-day, the true, deep, intimate sex that isn't going to be just two people masturbating, essentially. Mm. The, The brunch on Sunday to nest, right? Going out shopping to buy things for your home. Most of the women in my community deeply desire that and they get worried that it'll never happen. And then they start to settle for this approximation Mm -hmm. of this, like as you put it, settling for crumbs. It's something that, again, that 22-year-old person who got married at 22, that was God's path for them. But wow, they do not get it. They just don't. They don't. (laughs) Totally. Oh my goodness. I heard a woman speaking recently. She was this expert on dating And she was talking, and then finally towards the end, she said that she met her husband when she was 16 or 17, and they got married when she was 18. And I was like, okay, (laughs) you've lost pretty much like all credibility (laughs) to tell me as a (laughs) 35-year-old how to date or online dating or not. I just, everyone's story is different, but I think what can happen is there can be a real lack of empathy, a real lack of understanding of what it's like, or even just the technological advances that are happening. Online dating is here to stay. More than half of couples meet online. And whereas church folk, about 2.6% of couples meet inside the church. And so online dating isn't going anywhere. Thank God for technological advances. Let's learn how to interact with those as opposed to just, it's different dating when you're 16 than when you're in the 30s. It just is. Yes. Yes. And, and and I think similarly, so I got married at 42, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. I don't understand the struggle of marrying someone at 18, 20, 22, 24, mm-hmm. 25 even, mm-hmm. and having to grow up together. Like, yeah. I don't get that. Right. So I'm not the person to speak to that audience. Right. right and right. nor should I like, oh, yeah, when you're 32 and all of a sudden you have different interests, what? how do you mm-hmm. make the marriage continue to make it strong? I got nothing for you. <laughs> yeah. I can talk about having married later and coming to my partner with the fullness of my independence and how to make that work. We can have that conversation. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I, if I were you and I'd been listening to that woman, I'd been like, <laughs> no, this person has nothing for me. No. <laughs> I mean, and, yes. and not to minimize, I'm sure she had the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she wanted to provide so much support and mm-hmm. wisdom, but it just, as you were speaking earlier about context, the context being so vastly different. No. Are you looking for customized, personalized gifts? Mugshop Montreal by Brie Jackson has got you covered. She offers a beautiful selection of high-quality, personalized custom products. 
What started off as a fun project for family and friends soon developed into a passion for creating custom keepsakes for anyone, for any occasion. She decided to take the plunge and follow her artistic vision by creating Mug Shop Montreal, a home-based business where she collaborates directly with her clients, using their inspiration to design a detailed, heartwarming souvenir that many have given as gifts or have decided to keep for themselves. You can visit her on Instagram and Facebook at Mug Shop Montreal to browse her lovely products. You know, something else you mentioned that I want to kind of segue into some of the stuff you talk about in the latter part of the book. You talked about that energy you were putting out there. So for these nights where you're going to stay out to your makeout, really the energy you're putting out there is I'm just looking for a makeout. Mm-hmm. And later in the book, you talk about how for a while, as you started to process some of what you were experiencing as a single woman dating and the heartbreaks you were encountering and starting to try to examine that, you talked about maybe at times getting stuck in a friend zone because you'd put on the friend zone glasses and presenting this energy of I'm Kat the friend and not realizing that when you were leading with that energy, it was oftentimes then bringing to you guys who you were palling around with and a couple of weeks into your friendship, you're ready for them to start taking it to the next level and they're asking for your friend's phone number. So speak to that and how that really makes a difference, the way that we present ourselves to the dating space. Yeah. Well, I I think first of all, so much starts in our mindset and, and our mindset is developed by real experiences. Our brains are always on a pattern hunt and they're always looking for evidence. So when we come to believe a narrative, whether it's guys don't like girls like me, or I'm always the friend, never the lover, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. When we hold claim to these truth statements that have some evidence to it, when we're like, nope, this is true. This is what always happens to me. Then our brain is constantly going to look for evidence to make that statement more true. Because our brains are like, oh, we're just gathering more evidence. Like this is the thing that we've agreed with. And so we're just going to keep looking for evidence. And so for my story, I did have very real experiences in high school and in college where I would really, really like a guy and he would end up liking my best friend or not be interested in me. And so I started believing that guys wanted to be my friend or at least that the guy that I liked wanted to be my friend. Guys liked me, but the guys that I liked wanted to be my friend. Mm -hmm. And so over time, that's all I saw. So -hmm. then because I believed that was true anything that did or didn't happen was ammunition for that cause. Mm-hmm. And so really it wasn't until I started doing therapy and work and emotional intelligence workshops and realizing I am the common denominator in every experience that I am in. Mm-hmm. So how am I create how am I responsible for creating this friend zone dynamic? It's much easier to just place the blame again externally instead of saying, all right, If I am only attracting men that want to be my friends, just as if I'm only attracting men that want casual hookups from me, how am I responsible for that? How am I creating that result in my life? And I remember one of, I had a life coach and I would say, I really want a serious relationship. I really want to be with person X. And she said, she would say, no, you don't. Based Mm. off results, you don't. 
based off results, you don't. And so the more I started unpacking what's underneath this friend zone thing. And really for me, I felt so unworthy and I highly doubted that I was worth the affection of the guys that I really liked. And so, because I would, before I even stepped into the room, I didn't feel worthy. Then a safety net for me was then, well, so I just, I know that I'll just be the friend. So then when I would go into the room, go into the conversation, get into the friendship, even though deep down what I really wanted was more than friends, I settled for a friendship because I thought something is better than nothing. And then I also thought, maybe they just need to see me in different lights. Maybe they just need time. So I would play this game of like the one woman circus of trying to earn the affection of a man, which really ended up not even being anything about the guys and more about me working out my daddy issues. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think whatever the narrative is, whether it's, man, I'm stuck in the friend zone, be curious about that. What is the price you're paying for believing that? But what's the reward you're getting? The price I was paying for that was that I wasn't getting to be in romantic relationships with men that I was interested in. But the reward I got was that I didn't really ever have to put myself fully out there and then be hurt or rejected. So friend zone for me was a form of self-rejection. Let me just go ahead and put myself in this friend zone so that I don't get hurt. And so what that can look like now for me is before b- before I walk into any room grounding myself, I am worthy. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't that guy like me? Right. And not a false sense of ego, but I have a lot going for me. I am worthy. I'm a catch. And why wouldn't he be interested in talking to me? And if he doesn't, it says nothing about me. And so leading from a place of internal worth, that's how the friend zone game changes is, oh, wow, I I am interested in this guy. And instead of me putting myself in the friend zone, I'm going to lead with vulnerability and let him know I'm interested in him. For a person who is terrified of rejection, that can feel like death. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh. I even realized I would avoid the eye contact of any guy I found attractive. Hmm. And so I wondered for years, why do only the awkward guys want to ask me out or men that are old enough to be my dad? It was such a pattern, but none of the guys I thought attractive that I thought were attractive would ask me out. I played an eye contact game where I realized, oh, I feel so safe making eye contact with guy friends or even strangers when I'm not attracted to them and there's no risk in it for me. Mm -hmm. But if I'm interested in the guy, I will avoid their eye contact like the plague. So Mm -hmm. a huge challenge that I do for myself and I coach my clients is once a day, make eye contact with someone you find attractive and just hold their eye contact for two or three seconds and smile. Just try it on and see what happens. See what it brings up in you. Yeah, that is so great because it's also grounded in the research that Dr. Duana Welch, who I refer to her work a lot, this is tons of research from anthropology and evolutionary psych. Yeah, we don't do the chasing, but we got to let the guy know that we're open to him pursuing us. And if we make that eye contact and it is sustained and it's going to be a little bit longer than it is comfortable in general and certainly more comfortable 
than we would normally feel if we aren't used to making eye contact with those guys we do mm-hmm. find attractive. But if we don't let them have any idea that we are open to them pursuing yeah. us, we can't even get that spark going. So yeah. I love that you were able to examine kind of what was going on with the energy. What were the beliefs that were behind it that were fueling the way that you were presenting yourself and showing up in the dating space? And then unpacking those beliefs and recognizing how were they serving you? They weren't, but there was that subtle reward, right? That secondary benefit of you not having to put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And you break down these beliefs in your book in this chart. So the mindset stuff is all me all day. The theme Mm -hmm. of this podcast is take charge of your thoughts, take charge Mm -hmm. of your life. And we take charge of our thoughts by looking at those beliefs that are fueling the thoughts. And so I love the way you break that down and looking, is it rooted in fear or freedom? And so often those beliefs that are limiting, that lead to the thoughts that are limiting, that lead to behaviors that don't get us what we want, they are rooted in fear, Mm -hmm. so much fear. And I also wanted to bring back to what you were talking about of the way that our minds are primed to look for evidence to support our beliefs, even if they're limiting. And that in social psych, we call that a confirmation bias. You're probably familiar with that term. And Mm -hmm. we talk about that a lot with my community as well, because we think we're seeing the world as it is, but we're not. We are Mm -hmm. actively projecting onto the world the beliefs that we hold and therefore looking for evidence to confirm those beliefs. And so often if they're rooted in fear and they're limiting we are spinning our wheels and not getting what we deeply desire and that oftentimes we are in our own way. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals. And we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. I also, if you don't mind speaking a little bit about daddy issues, because you have a very interesting relationship with your father that you share at the end of the book where initially in therapy, your therapist was trying to link some of what was going on to maybe some father stuff. And you're like, no, no, my, my dad and I are great. And you currently are, but there had been some more traumatic elements of your dynamics in your childhood. So can you speak a little bit to that and how that's informed where you are now with dating? Yeah. So I found myself in a pattern of dating and attracting emotionally unavailable men. And I had one particular very on and off, very dramatic relationship with a guy in my 20s that went on for several years. And He never wanted to fully commit to me. He ran around with other women and he wouldn't even hide it. I I feel like my relationship with him was, reminds me of bridesmaids with Kristen Wiig and John Hamm and Maya Rudolph. And Maya Rudolph says to Kristen Wiig, he told you you needed dental work. Like this guy is treating you terrible. Why are you still going out with him? And so this guy and I had a tumultuous end and I was so confused because 
I was killing it in my career. I was confident in my friendships, but I would get to romance and just crumble. And I felt like a moth to the flame with this guy who just treated me poorly. And I felt like a stranger to myself. And I didn't understand why am I accepting such poor treatment? I can objectively see that this guy does not care for me, nor is he any type of guy that I would want for any of my friends, but it was almost like an addiction. Yeah. I I just couldn't, it's just, he was the, the addiction I couldn't shake. And so I started going to therapy. My therapist kept wanting to know about my relationship with my dad, which currently it was in a really beautiful place. And I just remember saying to her over and over again, I don't want to keep talking about my dad. I want to figure out why I keep dating bad guys. And I was so prickly. I was probably the worst. She'd be like, tell me about your dad. And I was like, well, tell me about your dad. What's wrong with you? Clearly you have daddy issues. I mean, I was the worst. And what she said to me is it doesn't matter as much who your dad is today, but who he was to you growing up. And my dad struggles with addiction and was in and out of our lives for actually until I graduated college because of his addiction. So my childhood was filled with very high highs and very low lows, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of infidelity and broken promises. So I was acting from a place of this young girl who was trying to convince her daddy to stay. And it it took me a long time to see that. But once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And then it was so clear and how all these dynamics of guys, even the friend zone conversation. Well, if I just show him, then he'll change for me. Right. Then he'll like me. If he just sees me in this light, he'll like me. That was me as a young child wanting to do anything to get my dad to stay sober. To do anything to get him to stay. Same thing with the guy that was a womanizer and didn't want to commit to me. Well, I I get to see his heart. I get to see his potential. And if if he can just if I can just help him lean into who he is 10% of the time, that's gonna be amazing. That's what I was trying to do with my dad my entire childhood. When he's sober, he's the best. If I can only just like get him to be there and take responsibility, that was never mine to take. And so it was in looking at my past, how I realized how stuck in my past I was and how I was recreating, and this is super common, I was recreating the drama and heartbreak of my past because it was all I knew and I hadn't healed it yet. And I think so many of us walk through our dating lives why do guys only want to be my friends? Why do guys only want casual with me? Why do I just end up with guys who cheat on me? Why, why, why? And yes, there are monsters out there. (laughs) There are unhealthy humans out there that prey on emotionally hurt and wounded people. And I also get to take responsibility of my past. And if we don't heal our past, it haunts us. And mine was really haunting me. And so I think what you talked earlier that you you were glad that you had all this time single to work on your stuff, not so that you could be this perfect person for your spouse, but this work isn't for another person in the future. This work, I am worth doing it right now. Regardless if I ever meet someone, I am worth 
healing. I am worth knowing that I matter. I'm worth knowing that I don't ever need to convince any guy to like me. (laughs) If I'm having to convince someone to like me, (laughs) then they're the wrong one for me. Yeah. When you explain it that way, I think it's so powerful and so helpful. And it's it's something so many, many women and men struggle with. And in family systems theory, we talk about the recapitulation of those family of origin dynamics. And what we do is, and it's actually kind of logical in a weird way. We, again, it's it's subconscious. So it's not like we're planning and setting out on the dating scene, trying to fix what happened in our past. But essentially, we, we're drawn to that those dynamics that we experienced as a child. And then we're hoping I'll get it right in adulthood. And that'll make mm-hmm. up for the fact that I couldn't ever quite do enough gymnastics and back bends and cartwheels to get my dad to stay sober when I was a child. But I'll be able to do all the, all the gymnastics here as an adult, whatever it takes. And I'll be able to get this person to stay with me in adulthood. And that mm-hmm. will somehow be a way to heal what happened in the past. And it doesn't work ever it brings more heartache to us. But there is like a bit of logic behind it that we are trying to just heal, like you said, in the way that we know how. We can't go back and change the past. So we try to work it out in our present and in fact, unfortunately, just heap more pain onto ourselves. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. After you were prickly and and a bit snarky with your therapist, how did you how did you ever decide? Wait, I think she's there's a point she's making, and I'm ready to kind of explore this. Man, I mean, I just kept showing up. Mm-hmm. I just kept going back, and I think that's part of the process. That's part of leaning into growth is saying, you know what, <laughs> I have blind spots, and I don't need to figure it out all on my own. And perhaps this person can see something that I can't. Doesn't mean that all our therapists or counselors are right, but just really realizing I'm stuck and me doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is the definition of the insanity cycle. And so I just kept showing up. And I remember so viscerally one experience, you know, I was back and forth with this guy, back and forth, back and forth. And I remember when it finally ended, I was just gutted. The way it ended was really painful. And I just remember laying on this couch, just sobbing. And my therapist being like, I want you to go home and listen to the song Unforgettable by Nat King Cole. Mm. Because what I hear in you is that you feel forgotten. And it sounds like in your story with your dad, you also felt forgotten. She's like, I feel like God wants to tell you a different story. But you've had a story for so long that made you feel forgotten. That this is just another tally on the scoreboard of you feeling forgotten. And she said, there's a different way. And I think that was one of the first times where I was like, oh, I get it. And I remember going home and listening to that song over and over and over again on repeat and just like laying in my bed and receiving those words that I was unforgettable and that I am unforgettable in every way. And and it didn't magically make things better overnight. I mean, I'm 
12 years, 15 years into a process of working through my stuff. And sometimes working through your stuff makes your life harder because <laughs> yeah. you're like, I can't just be like, oh, well, I was grumpy. And that's why I responded that way. I'm like, oh, wow, I was really activated because I feel rejected. And wow, now I can take responsibility over that. And sometimes <laughs> I, I remember, man, ignorance was bliss. I could just be like, oh, yeah, I was just in the friend zone. <laughs> Just what I did. And now I'm like, right. oh, I'm scared of being seen. And now I have the tools to put myself out there. <laughs> so it was not a one and done moment. And it and it isn't a one and done moment. I think we have the opportunity to grow every moment of our lives that we choose. I love that she chose that song. It's so poignant. Um, did you listen to the version he sings with his daughter? Oh, yeah. She, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful song. It's really special. It's um my dad and I used to sing that song together actually. Mm, um, he was a yeah. So it's really poignant, and I think it was a perfect song your therapist picked. Cat, thank you so much for joining me on the program. Let everyone know where to get your book, Sexless in the City: A Sometimes Sassy, Sometimes Painful, Always Honest Look at Dating, Desire, and Sex, and where to find you on the socials. Yeah, so you can get Sexless in the City at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Audible, anywhere you buy your books. And you can also learn more about it at sexlessinthecity.com or sexlessinthecitybook.com, sorry. Oh. And then my <laughs> website and Instagram is The Refined Woman. My weekly podcast is The Refined Collective. And you can listen to that on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Great. Well, thank you once again. Thank you. The love and life hack for this week is let's hold each other and ourselves in high regard, emotionally, intellectually, and physically. If you haven't grabbed my free empowered dating playbook, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com. Also, for those of you who've been waiting for the audio version of my book, Single is the New Black, Don't Wear White Till It's Right, it's here. You can find it on my website, on Audible, or on iTunes. Also, I have some really cool news. You'll soon be able to text me your questions and join my texting community for those of you who prefer texts to emails, or for anyone who wants to stay in touch via both options. Thanks, as always, for being a part of the Love and Life family. You all mean so much to me. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.